You're listening to A Climate Change with Matt Mattern. I've got uh, Representative Justin Pearson, a state representative from Tennessee, the volunteer state on the show today. Uh, Justin was expelled from the House of Representatives for protesting gun violence. Um, he was elected at age 28 to be one of the youngest state legislators in Tennessee. Uh, you know, for, as a young kid, I was kind of raised to be kind of anti-gun. I, my dad was very much against the use of guns, so I've never had a gun, fired a gun, and so I'm, I, I'm totally behind you on that one. I was very impressed by your co-founding of an environmental group, Memphis Community Against Pollution, that successfully helped get a pipeline canceled, and uh, you brought helped bring in Al Gore, former vice president, and uh, Danny Glover, Jane Fonda, kind of a bunch of heavy hitters. And uh, the community, the concerns of the community were that the pipeline would pollute an, aquif uh, an aquifer as well as other areas. And the pipeline owner said that the planned route was chosen because it was, quote, the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. And uh, this path was through a historically black neighborhood and the pipeline company didn't consider the potential contamination to the drinking water of over a million residents. And uh, so I think that was an incredible win. Uh, just I thought it was great that you got reelected after you were expelled by the Republican majority there. So it's great that your constituents had the last word and stood by you. Uh, I'm excited to have you on the program to talk about a host of issues. The one in particular is environmental racial justice and how historically heavy polluting industries have been located in areas where black communities have lived and this pollution has poisoned the people who are living here, there. Uh, so obviously this is a very serious issue and I'm so glad to have you on the show to talk about it and uh, welcome, Justin. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for having me. Um, you know, my start into this uh, social justice movement really was uh, spurred by the environmental justice movement uh, that uh, was launched here in Memphis and catalyzed by the fight against Bahalia Pipeline. And the reality is a lot of these movements are intersectional, right? The places that are most polluted, places most policed, places have the highest level of gun violence, most poverty. And so um, I believe the environmental and climate justice movements really are an opportunity for us to uh, build uh, solidarity and also to build movements uh, uh, across so many different demographics. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your backstory and, and how you came to uh, this position of leadership and you know, uh, obviously you're still a pretty young guy, but uh, what what was kind of the origin story uh, for you, Justin? Yeah, I mean, I give a lot of credit to my grandmothers, my grandmother Gwen, my grandmother Pearson, for who I have become and who my family uh, has become. Uh, they were true uh, black women, uh, Southern matriarchs uh, who helped instill a lot of family values from faith uh, to family uh, to service um, into us. You know, my grand one of my grandmothers was a nurse. The other was a school bus driver. Um, and uh, they raised my parents uh, who were actually teenage parents into who they who they are. You know, they had six kids and five kids, respectively. My grandfathers had divorced them. Uh, my parents were relatively young, and yet they still built this family. They still built a community uh, in spite of those things. And it it, it worked. It propelled my parents, uh, who, again, they had my first brother at 16 and 15 years old um, uh, uh, to faith and went to a 
church, Mississippi Boulevard, and they heard a sermon called Vision 2000. And the tenets of the sermon were, I thought it, I called it, I saw it, I bought it, and now I've gotten it. Um, preached by Dr. Alvin O'Neill Jackson. And these, this story, the, the, this sermon becomes sort of the bedrock, the foundation of my family origins um, uh, onto the path that we're on now. And uh, my parents earn bachelor's degrees and master's degrees. My mother is now earning her doctorate degree in education. And remember, they're doing this uh, even though they had just previously been working at McDonald's and, and, and minimum wage jobs, but they really had opportunity, an opportunity to have education as the, the ladder uh, to help uh, uh, raise us out of poverty and the conditions in which we found ourselves. I often say I was born uh, financially poor, but spiritually rich, and that that faith, that spirit really did fill us um, up. And always giving back to the community was a part of who we are and what we did, you know, even when we didn't have much, when we had the uh, food can drives and things in middle school uh, that I'd help put on as part of student government. Uh, we always gave cans. We always did, you know, whatever we could uh, to contribute, realizing that there was always other folks who were in a worse predicament in, in truth than we were. But I was 15 when I gave my first speech um, uh, to a really powerful group of people. And it was to demand textbooks. We were denied textbooks and teachers in certain classrooms. I mean, uh, I had moved from Virginia where my dad went to Howard University down to Memphis, and we really didn't have the same resources that I just had living in Virginia uh, for, for several years. And so I went before the school board and I said, there's no way that we're going to get a college degree and we don't even have an opportunity to get uh, uh, textbooks uh, from the school. And so after that, over the next two days, two 18-wheelers filled with textbooks uh, came to our school for every subject, for every student. Um, and I realized, you know, just the power of advocacy, the power of speaking up, the power of elevating uh, our voices for issues that matter and for change. Uh, and I have continued and persisted in that in college, came back and ran an education program. And it's no coincidence that the same area, the same place where I went to school is the same community uh, that was called the path of least resistance by the pipeline company, right? And so um, this is the neighborhood where I'm from, Westwood. Um, th there's something about the sense of place. There's something about uh, the places that have been deprived of access to opportunities and resources that oftentimes do become the places uh, that get picked on by uh, fossil fuel corporations and by corporate giants uh, who who don't care about our communities. Yeah, it's unfortunate uh, as those companies have so much power politically to just bend uh, the forces to their will, and they pay out so much money to representatives around the country. So they they grease the wheels and and uh, unfortunately have allowed you know a lot of projects have been greenlighted that they shouldn't have been greenlighted. But just uh, a lot of things to unpack in what you said. I really like the spiritually rich. Uh, line that you had, which is which is beautiful. I just think that's a, it's a great way of phrasing it, and, and it's a great outlook on life. That uh, that's the more important thing than monetary riches, is spiritual riches. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a former McDonald's worker, I can kind of relate to uh, to your mom in that respect. Uh, obviously, you know, other things may be different for both of us, but um, you know, I, I do believe that working and finding a way and getting educated is is the way to empowerment and 
Um, and also an amazing story of you at 15 demanding textbooks and um, what what a great lesson to to young people out there to to speak up and hey, you're never too young to have a voice you know look at Greta Thunberg uh, she was just a elementary school kid and just saying hey no we're not going to take it anymore right. and just I, I love that so uh, so where where did you um, where did you pivot to next uh, after coming out of college? Yeah, I immediately after school, I started to do work in economic empowerment. So uh, one of the things that is so important in this society, right, is economic justice. And economic justice is tied up with racial justice, is tied up with social justice. And if people do not have the economic resources to 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 deal with their day to day lives, the oppression that is faced from poverty becomes even more crushing. Uh, healthcare uh, uh, incidences or scares really have even more significant impact. And so I know that economic justice is tied up up and how people are able to have a level of freedom. The, the harm or the danger of exploitative capitalism is that it takes away people's time. It's a theft of time. Uh, and if you have to work 80 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week, um, uh, you, you lose a whole lot of things. You, you lose the ability to, 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 to go to the baseball league with your child. You, you lose the opportunity to go home and, and practice the times tables. You, you lose so much um, when you don't have economic justice. And so right after um, college, I started to work on helping small businesses to grow. And then I did uh, and worked in a, a $200 million nonprofit uh, called Year Up, a national organization that did workforce development to give people uh, uh, access to an opportunity to have jobs uh, in corporate America so that they could have financial stability um, in in their lives. Kids, people who are from the ages of 18 uh, to 29. And now my brother's even in that program. And so I believe that's still an important foundation for people to have. Well, absolutely. And uh, I think that uh, what you're talking about uh, makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously, if, if you have less time to build your community, build your family, because you are just living from paycheck to paycheck, uh, it's it's impossible to kind of, um, you, you know, build any kind of wealth or just, uh, as you mentioned, healthcare. I mean, uh, and then uh, something kind of near and dear to my heart is uh, food and getting good food mm -hmm. into uh, people's uh, diet. And, and of course, we have all these food deserts. And quite frankly, one of my things is that we would be well served as a nation to kind of subsidize getting really good food and every on everybody's table. Because when you think of the health care costs, $330 billion a year we spend on diabetes treatment. Well, if we gave kids better food, you know, they wouldn't be getting diabetes. Uh, but uh, that's that's yet another level of this. Uh, so anyway, everybody, we've got uh, Representative Justin Pearson on, on the program. You're listening to A Climate Change with Matt Mattern. And we'll be right back in just one minute to talk to Justin about uh, a host of issues that uh, Justin is working on. to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got Representative Justin J. Pearson on the program. 
out of Tennessee, the great state and uh, the volunteer state. So uh, tell me next, um, Justin, we were talking about your college experience uh, and uh, coming out of college and working for the nonprofit. Uh, where, where did you pivot to next after that? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the most significant things that have happened in most of our lives, right, has been COVID. Uh, and so after working at Year Up um, uh, while I was in Boston, uh, COVID happened and I moved home. Uh, I thought I was going to be moving for a couple of weeks. Uh, and it's turned into several years since, three years now. Um, uh, and it was really the experience of going home and being home or reconnected. One of my other brothers moved home and then another one, then another one. So four out of five of us ended up being at home in Memphis with my parents um, during uh, COVID. And that's actually when we also had, right, this summer filled with black deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Rayshard Brooks. Um, and a lot of questions were being asked about black life and the experience that black folks were having and why it was so different than white folk uh, uh, in this country. And at the same time, right, we've got this global pandemic that's happening. Uh, and at the start of it, everybody was saying this can impact anybody. Right. It's, it's indiscriminate, um, uh, rich or poor, black or white or Asian or Latino, anybody. It, it can it, it can impact anybody. Um, but then we started to learn as the months went on that that virus, uh, it actually wasn't as equal opportunity as we assumed. Right. That if you had comorbidities and you mentioned some of these just a moment ago, dealing with diabetes, uh, if you have high blood pressure. If you have those things happening, then you are more likely to die from COVID. And so we're figuring out more about this virus that we learned disproportionately kills low income folks, disproportionately kills black African-American folks. And then we're dealing in the summer where black people are being killed um, uh, all across the country, unarmed black people. And then uh, our community learns about uh, this project called the Bahalia Connection Pipeline. Um, and uh, we learned that they are looking to build a pipeline um, through our community, uh, bringing oil from Oklahoma down through Memphis, down through Mississippi to uh, the the um, Gulf, down into Louisiana. And the connections, right, of a virus that quite literally takes your breath away, connected to a project that would put more pollutants into the air because of the Valero oil refinery and the experience black people are having and the, 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 the combined consciousness raising of, I think, a lot of folks in our community and across this country um, led to the movement really being catalyzed by the late representative, Dr. Barbara Ward Cooper, who was the state representative of District 86 before I had the opportunity to serve in this position um, but who really uh, forced that pipeline company, Bahalia Connection Pipeline and Valero Energy Corporation, to come to Memphis and to hear the voices of the community. Uh, and that October 17, 2020, uh, was the day that MCAP, uh, Memphis Community Against the Pipeline, we've had a name change since, but Memphis Community Against the Pipeline, um, was launched. But I believe after my experience in Boston, um, and I lived and I still continue to do work, fortunately, right, um, working from home uh, uh, during the pandemic, I was able to really be home and be more proximate to this problem that I didn't even know uh, was happening, uh, but had been in the works for at least a year 
uh, before I'd moved back. Well, I had uh, recently uh, been talking to somebody because I, I have an environmental case against Exxon uh, mm -hmm. about pipeline pipeline maps here in, in Los Angeles. And I was surprised to see the pipelines just crisscrossing all yeah. over neighborhoods underneath our feet and mm -hmm. dangerous chemicals uh, as well as crude oil uh, being transported all over the place that most of us, certainly me, had no idea of what was happening. That's exactly right. And I mean, the pipeline company brought out that map and they said, what's one more pipeline, right? You've got dozens crisscrossing all around this city. You know, what's one more going to do? And, um, you know, what our response was, you know, if you're trying to quit smoking, you don't just say, hey, here's one more cigarette, right? What's one more going to do? You stop the problem, right? And you do everything that you can to prevent from contributing to it. And the reality is, it's not just about there being one more pipeline. It's about the hundreds of millions of tons of carbon that are going to be produced. It's about the land that is going to be lost. It's about the water that's going to be polluted. It's about the consequences of having these pipeline projects that are going to have lasting effects well after uh, our lifetime because of what it does to the climate and well after our lifetime because of what happens to those pipes. And one of the things we learned in our case against uh, Bihalia Connection Pipeline and Plains All-American was they forced people to write, con write in their contracts um, mm. that uh, the company had no liability for anything going wrong with the pipelines. And after they were, the pipeline would be out of use, it would be uh, able to stay in the ground in place in perpetuity. And so it would corrode uh, over the decades to come. It would uh, ultimately pollute the land in which it was uh, placed. And there would be no responsibility from the corporation to come and get that pipeline out of the ground. And so what would ultimately end up happening is the pipeline that would be defunct and now out of use 25 or so years from now, as we continue to move toward uh, more, more clean energy, my hope and prayer is that once that became defunct, uh, that pipeline would corrode, it would destroy that environment, and it would ultimately become polluted land. And so their property values would plummet, and that area around it uh, would be more polluted than it would have been had the pipeline never been placed. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, and I, you know, I think that this is something that is going to come become a, a big issue going forward. Uh, I was curious as to what your faith has uh, done to kind of motivate you in the environmental uh, arena. You know, a central uh, spiritual tenet is doing to others as you would have mm -hmm. to do unto you. And it seems as though polluting the land is not kind of the thing that uh, we should do unto others. Right. Uh, you don't hear a whole lot of that out there in the conversation. Uh do you bring your, your faith into this conversation much? Certainly. I mean, uh, we, we pray before our meetings. We have pastors at every rally we've ever held to pray at the beginning and to pray at the end every March. Prayer and our connection to our faith and Christianity is my faith that I practice, but to all faiths that believe in love, 
that believe in the protecting of the environment, the care for the environment is deeply important uh, because the battles that we are fighting, it's not just with multi-billion dollar corporations, right? We're fighting against what the the tag, what the Bible says is principalities and wickedness in high places. There are systems that are in place that are undergirding the injustices that we are experiencing. I've got uh, good colleagues of mine fighting the Mound Valley pipeline. And just recently, President Biden signed into law that the Mound Valley pipeline could be expedited. And the only reason he signed that into law was because Senator Joe Manchin called the CEO of the Mount Valley Pipeline, wrote this in, handed it to President Biden and said, if you don't do this, well, I'm not going to be supporting any of the policies that you have going forward. And so you have really three or four people who just dictated what would happen to millions of people's water, millions of people's land across three different states. That isn't what democracy looks like. That is not what justice looks like. But that is what wickedness in high places looks like when you have these. It's a real form of evil to see the planet be attacked and people be attacked and not be supported by those who are in positions of power to do something. And so when I think about um our faith and my faith practices, I mean, if it hadn't been for God, if it hadn't been for Jesus, I, I assure you, uh, I would not be here. There's a saying in, in, in our church, nobody but Jesus. Um, you know, my parents didn't have a whole lot of money, didn't have a whole lot of exposure um, uh, to a lot of the things that I have now been, been fortunate to see and to experience. Um, but God has been faithful uh, to us. And when you look at um, what we are supposed to do, it is to have dominion over the planet. It is not to have dom- domination over it, right? It is to be caretakers uh, for this planet. And we have failed in doing that. And unfortunately, uh, our, our, our planet is suffering because of it. And for anyone who does have faith or does have a belief in something that is bigger than themselves, it also calls you and causes you to do things differently than the status quo. And I believe in this moment in time, we are being forced and we are being called to do something differently than continue to allow the proliferation of fossil fuels in our communities and to, 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 we have to stop allowing the proliferation of toxic release inventory facilities in our communities. And we're being called as a people, as a human species to stand up for uh, the trees and to stand up for the other four-legged creatures and the no-legged creatures of the sea and of the lakes too, uh, because that is God's vision. Well, I, I hear you there. And uh, I guess the question is, how are you how are you doing that in the legislature? How are you doing that in the community? And uh, what can we all do to help? Uh, certainly, I've had lots of guests on the show that uh, are working on a lot of these issues, and these are very challenging issues. Uh, and they challenge all of us to to think differently, to act differently. And uh, so, when we come back from the break, uh, we'll talk to. Representative Justin J. Pearson about these issues, which are so important, facing the whole world. And uh, the consequences are are biblical in nature. So we'll be right back. Uh, you're listening into a climate change with Matt Matters. to a climate change. I've got Representative Justin J. Pearson on the program. Uh, Justin, before the break, we were talking about engaging in the movement, uh, 
in terms of legislation, community action, political action to uh, change the environment, to clean up our environment, so many different levels. It challenges us all. Um, what, uh, what do you see happening there in Tennessee? What efforts are you leading? What's on the you know your radar screen right now? Yeah, I mean, this effort to protect our climate and our environment is going to have to happen at every level. The reality is we are not out of time to solve the climate crisis, but we are out of time for people to be on the bench during this crisis. Whether you look at the fires that ravaged Maui, you look at the severity of the hurricane happening uh, down in Florida, where, where, uh, anything that's on the news now, you can look at wildfires that happened earlier this year in Canada that impacted the breathing and the air quality in New York and Washington, D.C. I mean, all across our globe, we are seeing the need for us to do something significant and something drastic about the climate crisis. And one of the main things we must continue to do as people of conscience and as people who care is speak the truth about what is going on. This is not normal. The conditions that we are being forced to live in with these 100 degree plus days, with these wildfires, with these floods, this is not the way that things should be. And this is an exact effect of climate change. And it's because of the lack of, uh, of, of conscious and courage of people who are in positions of power to act to do things meaningfully. And so I've kind of got two thoughts, one being for folks who are organizing locally, it's so extraordinarily important. Pipeline companies and the fossil fuel industry are most terrified of people organizing locally because they have the most proximity, the most care, the most concern about the place. They know that they can't be bought out or sold out and they won't give up easily. We have to organize, mobilize, and activate at the local level. And so whether that's joining a chapter of the Sierra Club or starting your own nonprofit organization, as we did down here in Memphis, now is the time to act, to build up our advocacy to local government, county governments, state governments, and to the national government about the need to have more renewable energy, about the need to not allow for polluters to continue to pollute our communities, our waterways in the ways that they are. And it's to show a force that we care about the future and the generations that are going to be behind us. You know, a lot of our siblings in the indigenous community talk about the seven generations. You always have to pay homage to the generations that have come before. You pay homage to the seven generations that are going to come after you. And what are we doing for the seven generations that are coming after us? How are we serving the seven generations of human beings that are going to be on this planet, that's going to be on this land that we currently call the United States of America? What are we doing in order to ensure that seven generations from now, they will be living in a place that is more whole, in a place that is more safe, in a place where they don't worry about the air that they breathe or the water that they drink being polluted, whether that be in Flint or that be here in Memphis, Tennessee. And so we have to continue to organize ourselves locally and build our power and build our strength. And it's possible to do that. And I've been a witness to it, uh, whether it be the Southern Environmental Law Center or Protect Our Aquifer or Black Millennials for Flint or Climate Reality Project. It is possible for us to organize 
And it is also true that we cannot stop at just marching and our protesting and our advocacy. We have to have leaders in positions of power who care about our communities. And as a legislator, I've prioritized the issue of climate change as, as one of the top issues for our office to deal with. And, and it's because I am I'm deeply aggrieved uh, here in the state of Tennessee by the actions of the legislature. A lot of their policies bend toward the will of the Tennessee Valley Authority or to other folks who want more uh, frack gas or who want more uh, crude oil in, in uh, instead of leaving it in the ground. And so I definitely have prioritized this as an issue. And you have to realize there are people who are against us in this fight. Uh, I had uh, one member, a colleague, uh, just this past session uh, in January, uh, go before the entire body and say climate change is not real. Um, th- this is this is what we are up against, uh, and it is not it's not fictional, it's not fake. This is real, uh, and we have to have people who are in uh, uh, these legislative bodies and who are in these executive positions who are going to stand up and to speak up for the people who are most proximate. Uh, I applaud the Biden administration on on several things when it does things right, like the R- IRA. Uh, contributions and Justice 40, an initiative to give more money to environmental justice communities. But we have to be honest that the 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 projects like the Willow Project being approved by this administration is going to devastate uh, the climate. Is going to devastate our our relatives in 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 different parts of this country, and it's mostly going to impact. Uh, people. That's that's what we have to talk about. We talk about the environmental justice struggle and the climate justice struggle here, Matt. It's going to impact people the most who had the least to do with the creation of the problem, right? And so poor people are hurt the most. Black people, indigenous people, communities of color are going to suffer the most harms because of climate change and because of environmental injustice, despite the fact that they are reaping the fewest economic or even social benefits from what is being created or done in the first place, which is why we have to hold these polluters accountable. We have to make polluters pay for their pollution. We have to hold our elected leaders accountable for ensuring we have clean air and clean water and clean soil. We have a responsibility to make sure that we elect leaders who are going to put that vision forward of a cleaner climate and of more just environmentally just community. Communities, because a lot of communities have been on the front lines of this, or as Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali says, a lot of communities have been sacrifice zones uh, for polluters because people have not paid attention to those communities because of who lives there, uh, not just what is there. Well, I think it's uh, well said that polluters have to pay for the cost of their pollution. And mm-hmm. up to this point in time, polluters have not paid the cost anywhere near the cost of their pollution. Every so often they might get slapped on the wrist here or there, but the true cost of their pollution is in the trillions of dollars and, and they haven't paid that cost. And, and uh, to have true justice in a, in a system that would be just, uh, they would have to pay that cost. I had a guest on the program recently, Melissa Sims, uh, who is suing Exxon and all the major oil companies for, um, you know, putting so much CO2 into the atmosphere that exacerbated the uh, Hurricane Maria. And that would be a great example of the polluters maybe being held accountable for the true cost of their of their policies, which they knew. They absolutely knew that this was going to happen. They had it in their own internal memorandum that this is these types of things would happen. So 
Uh, I also really like what you said. It's uh, we we don't have we are not out of time, but there's no time to sit on the bench. So we all have to get in the game. So that's uh, that's a beautiful phraseology. And I, I think an optimistic, but also realistic that we can't sit on the bench any longer. Because quite frankly, I know I sat on the bench for a number of decades, just kind of watching it, seeing, oh, OK, it looks bad. It looks uh, it's actually getting a little worse. Uh, you know, what? <laughs> oh, my God, it's really getting terrible. Uh, maybe I should do something. Um, so there's no more time for just kind of fiddling around. No, that's that's exactly right. And I mean, and it's not that folks have to do anything extraordinary, right? And sometimes it is just showing up to a meeting and getting your voice heard. Sometimes it's scheduling that meeting with the state representative or the city council or the county commissioner uh, or your public utility and saying, how are you all thinking about climate change as it relates to uh, uh, how our city or our county or our state's going to survive? And it's important that we all um, use our privileges that we do have. Uh, to force those conversations to be had uh, and, and choosing a social location um, with the people who are going to be impacted the most matters. I think often about our unhoused population dealing with these extreme uh, weather, with, with this extreme weather and how hot it is um, here in, in the South and Memphis in particular. And how are they going to survive? How are folks going to survive if their air conditioning isn't working and we don't even have fan programs to help cool people down? We have to start uh, legislating not from the place of privilege, but we legislate from the people who have been denied uh, those privileges. We legislate from the people who are most socioeconomically impressed. We legislate from the periphery, the folks who have been pushed to the periphery, not from the people who have privilege. And when we do that, we come up with the solutions that are more fair and more just. And the reality is this is has got to be a intersectional, intergenerational, multi-generational type of movement. And Heather McGee writes in her book, The Sum of Us, she writes often about um, building the solidarity dividend, right? In most movements and all movements uh, for America's future, it has been the solidarity dividend. White folks and black folks, rich folks, poor folk, uh, uh, organizing, galvanizing together that have helped to disrupt the status quo. And we have to have such a movement for environmental and climate justice as well. Absolutely. We we all need to work together. And uh, yeah, there is a tremendous dividend to everybody. And I think that it's important to kind of talk about the tremendous benefits that we can have as a society to have clean air, to have clean water. Obviously, that's invaluable. That's worth more than anything else. So yes. we need to, we need to uh, we need to play up the benefits of this. There are all kinds of clean jobs that can be created if we uh, focus on creating clean energy, mm -hmm. uh, so on and so forth. And, and quite frankly, that money isn't the end all and be all. That, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, looking at these things in terms of the health of our citizens um, is, is something more important than money. And that's, that's the problem that I see in, in many people out there is focusing on, hey, what is the monetary gain without seeing well, the true cost of polluting our land is is beyond money. Mm -hmm. So you're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got Representative Justin J. Pearson on the program. We'll be right back uh, with Justin talking about the issues that are facing him in Tennessee and across the planet. We can change the world. 
to a climate change. I've got Representative Justin J. Pearson on the program uh, from the great state of Tennessee. Uh, Justin, tell us about uh, maybe your four heroes that you would put on your uh, personal Mount Rushmore um, that kind of inspire and motivate you. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I was listening to a sermon once by Dr. Cornell West, who I've diverged on in some of his ideas more recently, but uh, when my dad was attending Howard University, I heard him preach a sermon and he said, um, your heroes must be touchable. These have to be people that you can you can touch and who you can ask questions to and who you can talk with. And um, uh, two of mine would be my parents, uh, Dr. Kimberly Owens Pearson and Reverend Jason C. Pearson. And two would be my grandmothers who have now gone on to glory Um but they have been so integral to an integral to the story of my life because uh, I learned during the pipeline fight, Matt, that they both uh, died from cancer. I knew that, but I learned that in our neighborhood, the cancer risk was 4.1 times the national average because we have 17 toxic release inventory facilities around our neighborhood of Westwood and Boxtown. And so they were victims to environmental injustice and environmental racism uh, um, themselves. And we didn't know those words or really understand them before. We knew the smells, we knew those types of things, but we didn't know or didn't connect the illnesses that we were seeing in our own loved ones with environmental racism, and we do now. And so as particularly as I think about this movement, I think about them. And I do think about my parents often and, and kind of what they have endured in order for my brothers and I to, to be who we are and where we are. You know, it was not an easy path. Um, uh, and as I heard um, Willie Phipps say once, uh, he's, he was told, you know, if the mountain was smooth, you couldn't climb it. Uh, they came up uh, some rough sides of the mountain, uh, but they have remained touchable. Um, Jesus's touchable Christ to me. Uh, and, and good uh, signposts and guides uh, on this journey um, toward justice and, and a, with a, a, a deep-hearted and deep-seated belief that what is happening right now in our world, in our country, in our state, in our city uh, that is wrong um, does not have to be this way. Uh, and putting forward a faith that always says uh, there is a better way. There is a different way that is also possible and that is also attainable if we work toward it, if we fight for it, if we give all that we've got to it. Now, that's beautiful. And uh, I, I, I love the heroes must much be touchable. And uh, I think that that's a good thing to kind of keep in mind, because sometimes uh, I think of heroes as these distant, mythical, almost figures in history and and. Uh, you know, in some ways, that's why I like to read biography because you you start to see, hey, they are real human. You know, they had their yeah. way. they were not just all perfect, and uh, it's good to remind ourselves that heroes don't always have to be kind of perfect uh, on their walk along the path. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, can you recall a time uh, in that you spent in nature as maybe a young person? that uh, you felt really connected and it kind of inspired you um, and describe how it felt for you. 
Yeah. So before I started college, um, I actually had the opportunity to do a, I guess it was a week long pre-orientation working on Morris farm, um, uh, which I always wanted to work on a farm. So it was just great. Um, but, uh, the memory that comes to mind, I had never been somewhere that was actually on a farm where there were no lights. Um, and so there was no light pollution. And I went outside the first night, uh, I remember vividly, I went outside and I looked at all of the stars and it still to this day is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life because it just, you just felt like you could see the Milky Way. You could see everything. It just felt like you could see the creation itself. Um, and other folks started to come outside and then I grabbed my sleeping bag and I went outside and I slept under the stars and with the stars. Uh, everyone else went inside. It was a little cold, so I get it. But I slept outside and I just, I was mesmerized in a way that I have never been um, in nature, with nature and in nature. And uh, I still cherish that because even though so many things seem so big, you just remember that there is a galaxy galaxies and galaxies of, um, uh, of these beautiful stars uh, that you really can't count um, out there and above us and surrounding us and wrapping us literally in light. Um, and, and that was, um, it was an extraordinary moment that, that I, I still, I still cherish. That's a, yeah, that's a beautiful story. Uh, I had a, kind of a similar moment. I went to kind of camping out in Death Valley with some friends and having a hard time kind of sleeping. And I went out to uh, to lie out on a picnic table and uh, it was just that blanket of stars where you could see the Milky Way up there and there's so little light pollution. And it is just uh, unbelievable because we don't, we don't normally see that being city folks because uh, there's so much light pollution here in Los Angeles. You're lucky to see, you know, a handful of stars, let alone a galaxy uh, across the sky. So just wanted to ask you another question about that experience. What's something that you could do to recreate that feeling of being out under that blanket of stars, that awe and wonder um, that you aren't doing already, that you can commit to making the world a cleaner, greener place? And and I, I know that you're already out there doing all kinds of amazing work. So I'm kind of asking you, What's some, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be a huge thing or maybe a, a little thing, a modest thing, a personal thing. What anything that comes to mind? You know what? I, I think I ought to start doing more is spending more time in nature. Uh -huh. um, because to be honest with you, the, the job in, in and of itself is stressful. And we've been either in session or campaigning for the last nine months. I actually haven't had a whole lot of time. And so I think as part of a recommitment kind of to the calls might be a deeper redeepening, if I can say that, an appreciation for the creation uh, itself. And so there's um, even in our district is a Shelby forest. And so, you know, once a week, uh, especially when I'm home, I should, I should go uh, at night or, or uh, go for walks during the day to go see some deer and some doe and, and, and really uh, recommit uh, by continuing to recognize just the beauty of nature. So I appreciate that question. 
Well, I thank you for engaging in this exercise. Uh, it kind of comes from a guy who's uh, a mentor, a bit of mine, uh, Joshua Spodek, who had me on his podcast. He was on my podcast. He's kind of a sustainability guru who is all about kind of taking, you know, personal responsibility for sustainability and uh, reducing our level of waste and all that personally so we can be better leaders. So kind of like that integrity of doing the, you know, not only just talking the talk, but for us to walk the walk. And I think that that's so important. And uh, tell us a little bit about you and how you how you uh, walk the walk. Uh, we know you talk the talk, but. Uh, well, look, I, I love that. And I, I love having the personal fortitude to help uh, continue to push for the corporations that produce most of the the pollution to be responsible as well. Um, but personally, uh, something my fiance Oceane Argillium uh, and I are pretty uh, serious about, but we can continue to to do is dealing with our uh, uh, recycling and actually getting more people in our complex. Uh, to join us on that journey. Uh, and we're hoping this fall to start our composting work. Uh, uh, we we got a lot to learn, but we want to start a garden. And so um, we're, we're going to learn how to do that. I love that. Yeah, it's. I think that all of us, uh, you know, gain from taking the small actions, just like you said, and I think it was really beautiful, super powerful. And something I need to remember is uh, stay local a lot of times and do things that are local and connect to our local communities. Uh, people like me try to, you know, we think grandiosity sometimes like, hey, I wanna change the entire world. Uh, but, you know, starting with the uh, the local stuff is great. I wanna thank you, uh, Representative Justin J. Pearson for being on the show. Please go check out his social media channels, follow him up. You know, he's gonna be a rising star in the East. I can just, I can just tell it. Uh, even better, go out and volunteer and take action in your communities, find an organization, a political leader, and start uh, being the change you want to see in the world. Follow us at climatechange.com. Listen in on Spotify, Apple, iHeart. Uh, we've got 100 plus episodes out there with great guests. Uh, we've got Catherine Hayhoe, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe coming on the program next week and a noted environmental scientist and also a, a Christian. Uh, so kind of uh, continuing on that theme of Christianity and environmental science kind of going hand in hand. Uh, thanks for listening. Let's take action together and save our planet. Thank you again, Justin. Thank you so much, Matt. We can change the world.